Thanks so much for checking out this message from LifeGate Church. We hope that God uses this message to encourage you and help you grow deeper in your faith. All right, let's dive in. Well, one thing that many of us have gotten acquainted with over the last couple of years is internet shopping. Am I right? Show of hands, anyone who likes a bit of internet shopping? Show of hands, anyone who likes internet shopping a little bit too much? (laughs) Many of you, I imagine, would be able to relate to that feeling of excitement when the delivery driver pulls up out the front of your place. You can see him unloading the van, and already you're picturing yourself enjoying what it is you've ordered. Unless you've ordered so many things that you don't actually know what you're getting this morning. But you know it's going to be good. It might be a new pair of shoes. It might be the latest book or video game that you have been waiting to dive into. It might be the latest cool gadget with one more cool feature than the one you bought last year. Whatever it is, you know that in a few moments you're going to have that parcel, that package, in your hands ready for a grand unboxing. We see the delivery guy as a man of potential. He is a sign of good things. This is Sophie, our four-year-old Labradoodle. Sophie would like to disagree. You see, when the delivery driver pulls up out front, she knows that we are in danger. The neighbors are in danger. We are all in danger. There is a man in high-vis clothing approaching our residence, and gosh darn it, she's going to make sure that the whole neighborhood knows about this ominous threat. But we are defended. He might be bringing a 14-kilogram bag of dog food, but that is just a trap, friends. That is just a trap. Don't be fooled. This man means no good. That is what Sophie would have you believe. Friends, this morning, we are going to look at the question, what do you see? And to do this this morning, we're going to look at a couple of particular passages in the Bible, We're going to look at Jesus and ask this question, and we're going to do it from two very specific perspectives. First, we're going to look at the crowds surrounding Jesus at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Yes, it is Palm Sunday. And then right at the end of, that's right at the end of his earthly ministry. And then we're going to look at the crowd at Jesus' trial before Pilate five days later. Now, the cool thing about this is that I had no intention, or I had no idea that it was going to be Palm Sunday when I was sharing this message. I just prepared what God put on my heart, and lo and behold... Here we are, it's Palm Sunday. So I thought that was pretty cool. So let me set the scene for you this morning. We are at the end of Jesus' approximately three and a half year ministry. Much of that time has been spent teaching and performing miracles in Galilee and in the countryside around Jerusalem. Not a whole lot of time in Jerusalem. And now as it approaches the Passover festival, Jesus is returning to Jerusalem. He's performed one of his most significant miracles just a few days previous, raising Lazarus from the dead, calling him out from his tomb four days after his death. A crowd is forming around Jesus as he makes his way to the city. Now, it's also worth noting that this this event is recorded in all four Gospels. Much of Jesus' ministry is in this gospel or that gospel, maybe one or two or three times, but there's only a select number of events that all gospel writers thought to include or thought it was significant to include. Um, and they all um, describe this event and much of the events then for the next week. 
And so we read Matthew's account, and it goes like this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the, on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. All right, let's have a closer look at this text. There are five things that I want to point out here about this entrance into Jerusalem to give you a bigger picture of what's going on this morning. All right, so number one, Jesus entered Jerusalem as a leader, but he entered humbly. Now, all four Gospels say that Jesus approached Jerusalem riding on a donkey, on a colt specifically, a young donkey. Now, why would that be? Well, first, it was almost time for the Passover festival. There was going to be a lot of pilgrims trying to enter Jerusalem on foot. And so by riding on a donkey, Jesus is going to be noticed. Now, at other parts of his ministry, Jesus was kind of trying to stay on the down low. He knew that he was unpopular with some people, and at times he, he told people not to, to, to spread the word about him, or he was sort of trying to, um, yeah, not, not draw too much attention to himself. But here, that's no longer the case. He's, he's going to be riding amidst a lot of people on foot, so people are going to see him from a distance. The second thought about this is that a donkey is a lowly beast of burden. It's quite a humble creature for a leader or a king to be riding. Can you picture like the queen, like riding down the main streets on a donkey, you know, surrounded by, you know, 10 deep row of, of, of adoring people as she makes her way to Buckingham Palace. That seems kind of unlikely. Um, on a horse, maybe. I mean, I, she's rather old, but still, I could at least picture that, that was a, that's a bit more royal. Um, and the Romans of that time would have been riding horses, war horses at that, potentially. And by contrast, Jesus is here trotting along, not even trotting, plodding along on this small beast of burden. It's not exactly a picture of a threatening leader who's coming to overthrow the government. And this leads us to the third point, that Jesus was directly fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus was intentionally fulfilling Scripture. He does this knowing that the crowd will be familiar with the Scriptures. And in this act, Jesus is declaring himself King and Messiah of Israel. Number two, the crowds were large. Luke's Gospel describes them as a whole multitude of people. In John, we read that the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. So picture, there is already a whole lot of people who have arrived early for the feast. And they've heard this commotion. Jesus is coming, there's already a bit of a crowd following him, and more and more people are joining the crowd. They've heard that Jesus is on his way. So this makes maybe a bit more sense of Matthew's version of events, where he, re 
he, we read that the crowds that went before him and that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can picture that Jesus is amidst a sea of people swarming around him and shouting his praise. Which brings us to the next point. The crowds were full of praise and joy. Most of these people were from the countryside. That's where Jesus had spent much of his time in ministry. So it's quite likely that at one point or other, many of these people had witnessed witnessed Jesus' miracles firsthand. And his teaching too. If they hadn't, it's equally likely that a friend or family member of theirs had. And so they've still heard secondhand. So you can picture that Jesus' whole ministry has been building momentum up to this point. There is this excitement. There is an energy among the people. Jesus has been performing incredible miracles. He's been healing the sick. And the word is that he's just raised a dead man to life only a few days previous. This Jesus guy, he is definitely from God. And so we read in Luke 19:37 that the whole crowd of disciples, interestingly that he referred to them as disciples, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Point number four, the crowds acknowledged Jesus as king. In verse 8, we read that most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground. That was an ancient sign of homage reserved for royalty and suggests that there was this recognition amongst the people that Jesus, is, Jesus was making this claim to be king. And their declarations also indicated that they recognized this. We read in Matthew that the people cried, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save now or give salvation now. And the term son of David is a messianic title that was commonly used around that time. Another reason for this is that they are partial quotes from Psalm 118, one of a set of psalms that were recited at the feasts, one of which was, of course, about to happen. So they probably already had these words which were kind of lyrics to them in their mind. And then we read it more directly in Luke 19, 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they cried. That's a direct acknowledgement of Jesus as king. And lastly, the whole city was talking about Jesus. In verses 10 and 11, we read that the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is he? Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So maybe for some, there was a little bit of a doubt. Maybe the, the claim to being savior and king was a little new, but they still knew that he'd been performing all these incredible signs, so he had to be of God as a minimum, and hence the, the, uh, hence the reference to him as at least a prophet. Lastly, in John 12, verse 17, we read, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. So that last miracle was not done, you know, in private either. Um, there was a whole crowd that observed Lazarus coming out of the tomb. And so... All these witnesses are going and spreading the word further. The momentum, momentum continues to build. The buzz continues to build. So, a great number of people witnessed some part of the ministry of Jesus firsthand. What did they see? They saw a man who was unlike other people. A man who was healing. A man who was teaching wisdom they had not heard before. 
a man who was casting out demons and setting people free. They recognized that there was something special about Jesus. And you say, that's probably not hard in light of those signs and wonders. They recognized that Jesus was from God. And following that recognition, they had a desire to follow him, a desire to celebrate him. And so we have this event. Their response was to praise him. The outworking of these desires is just, it's this overflow of praise. They recognized Jesus had value for them, that he was worth following, and he was worth praising. Now, let's skip ahead five days. Jesus has been arrested and is standing on trial before Pilate because of false charges brought against him by the religious leaders. Once again, this is recorded in all of the Gospels, and we read about it in Matthew like this. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they all shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. The crowd was absolutely set on seeing Jesus die, and die in the most horrible way at that. Now, we don't know a lot about this crowd specifically, but it's likely that they were local Jews from Jerusalem, as opposed to the triumphal crowd from Galilee and the surrounds. And there was a lot of them, because Matthew says that they were starting to riot, and I figure you can't have a riot with ten people. And they were extremely persistent in their cries for Jesus' crucifixion. It was positively vicious. One thing we do know is that the crowd were being led by the chief priests and elders, who were likewise hell-bent on seeing Jesus crucified. Now, whenever I'm reading any of the Gospels, it is always at this point that I pause. How, in five days, did we get from here, Jesus' triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, surrounded by crowds of adoring followers, shouting God's praise, to here, a large angry mob crying for Jesus to be tortured and horrifically killed. How, how did we get here? 
in such a short space of time at that? Well, the scriptures do give us some insight into this. In Mark 15.10, we read of Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. It was out of envy. They were envious of Jesus. They were jealous of Jesus because he had this growing popularity and influence among the people. They were threatened by all that Jesus was doing because they knew that their lives and their teaching of oppressive religious rules didn't line up with Jesus' teachings. And Jesus was the one moving in the power of God. Then we read in John chapter 11, verse 46 to 48, this is just after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. But some of them, that is, some of the crowd, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They were worried that if the messianic expectations around Jesus continued to grow, it could start a movement against the Roman oppression. And then the Romans would come and crush them. Their rights and their freedoms would be taken away. They could lose their standing in society. They could lose their society. Their way of life was threatened. Their status These people, they were religious leaders. They had authority in the current status quo. What does that look like for them if the Romans come in? And so even though they recognized Jesus' many signs and wonders, rather than attribute that to God, they jumped to this emotional response of envy and insecurity. And the outworking of this was the desire to murder him. What did they see? They saw Jesus as a threat who needed to be eliminated. Now, here's the thing that strikes me about these accounts. Both crowds had heard Jesus' remarkable teachings. Both crowds had witnessed the miraculous healings. Both crowds had seen Jesus exercise incredible power in various signs and wonders. Or at least, they had heard all of these things from credible eyewitnesses. When the first crowd looked at Jesus, they saw one who releases and restores. The demon-possessed were being set free. The sick were being healed, the dead were being raised, and those who were shunned or condemned for their lifestyle, Jesus was forgiving them their sins and giving them new direction for life. When the second crowd looked at Jesus, they kind of felt restricted. They didn't recognize the transformation Jesus brings. They didn't want to live differently. They didn't want to change. John tells us that they were so threatened by Jesus and the fact that the people were leaving the religious ways of these authorities to follow Jesus, that the chief priests actually started making plans to murder Lazarus. Because on account of this miracle, people were believing in Jesus. I mean, come on, the guy's only just been raised from the dead. He's been given a second lease on life, and now you want to murder the guy just because Jesus likes him? That's real low, chief priests. That's real low. But that's the level to which they had fallen. They couldn't see Jesus as he is because their envy and their selfish fears got in the way. So that, this morning, leads us to the question, what do you see when you look at Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? 
Is he, is he healer? Is he the source of wisdom for life? Is he the one who forgives sins, past mistakes? Is he savior? Is he king? Or perhaps I should ask, is something stopping you from seeing Jesus for who he really is? Because I think sometimes we get in our own way. We get in the way of what Jesus is trying to do. It may be in a particular area of life. Hopefully none of us are quite like the uh, chief priests who only have murderous hate for Jesus. But it may be just in a certain area of life you're not seeing Jesus for who he really is. Maybe you really need Jesus to help mend broken relationships in your family or in another area of life. But you're afraid to be vulnerable. It might mean really hard conversations. And so you've put up a wall and you're afraid to put yourself in a situation where Jesus can heal that relationship. Maybe you're stuck in a behavior that you don't like. Maybe you're stuck in a behavior that you do like, but you still know it's not good. That's not what God wants for you. But change is hard, so you've given up. You've just accepted things the way they are. Even though you've heard that Jesus can help break habits, break behaviors and addictions. Maybe in the past you've been too proud. Maybe in the past you've been too afraid to ask Jesus for help. But you keep hearing that God loves you. And underneath pride or fear or whatever emotion it is, you want to be able to ask him for help. Well, whether it's fear, pride, lack of faith, apathy, so many things it could be, what is it that's getting in the way? Getting in the way of seeing Jesus for who he really is. Annabelle, I'll ask you to hop up on the keys. Because I want to take a moment this morning to just ask God, what is the thing? Is there a thing? Is there a couple of things that we've allowed to get in the way of seeing Jesus in all his fullness. Friends, I'd love for you to take a moment, take 30 seconds, and ask God, ask him to put his finger on it. And then we'll commit that to prayer, because Jesus has so, so much for us. And we want to embrace that in all its fullness. So take a moment and ask God, what is the thing? God, I thank you that you speak today. I thank you that you help us in our weakness, in our struggles, and I thank you for the things that you've pointed to this morning that people can say, yeah, I need to let you in there. I need to make a change there. I want to see you differently. I want to believe that you can break through. So God, we commit these things to you and we ask you in your power to move, God. We ask you to reveal yourself more. Help us to see Jesus exactly as you would have us see him, with all that he is for us, with all that he offers. Because, God, there is so much you have for us in your, in your vast greatness, in your vast love and power. There is nothing you can't do, God. And so, God, we commit these things, and, God, we, yeah, God, we want to see you we want to know you more. We want to know the depth of you more. Let's see you for who you really are, God, in all its fullness.
Well, I was tying this up and, and God gave me a cool illustration which I wanted to share this morning. It was quite last minute as I prepared this message. But it's just one of the things where God puts his finger on a thing and you're like, yeah, that, that's something I need to share. And so it's an illustration and it goes like this. This is a hedge in my backyard. It's, it's ordinary. It's average looking, I guess. It takes a bit of maintenance. I probably don't give it enough attention. It runs along the side fence line of our, of our backyard right up to the dining room. So I see it every day, pretty much. It's familiar. That's how I describe it. It's familiar. Now, recently, I've been spending more time in the backyard, both with Sophie and also with our 18-month-old Millie. It's, it's a good place to burn a lot of energy, um, get out of the house, get some sun, if it still exists. Um, and, and so I've, I've been out there quite a bit, and I started to have a closer look. And this is just a snapshot of what I found. To see, first, you have to look. I could not possibly appreciate the world of things that is out there if I did not stop, make the time to stop and go looking. And that's the thing. Sometimes we can stop looking at the things that we're familiar with. So it can be with Jesus. So it can be with the Word. So it can be with God. If you want to see Jesus for who he really is, there is no substitute for time spent with him. I can give you a glimpse of Jesus in the same way that I can give you a glimpse of these creatures, of what exists in my backyard. You can get the same glimpse if you go to a life group. And there are other things that, that will give you a picture, but it's no substitute for what Jesus can show you personally if you make the time. And so that's, that's the challenge I want to leave you with this morning, just to have that reality check. Hey, how much time am I giving God? What place in my life am I giving God? And, and yeah, yeah. How much more would I see? How much more would I grasp? How much more would I experience if I gave God maybe just a bit more time, maybe a bit more, um, yeah, within my priorities, if I bumped him up a bit and really seek him? Really seek him. How about we pray that in church? God, I thank you that you have created an incredible world with all sorts of things uh, that, that are just amazing. And thank you for this mini revelation you gave me, God. Um, God, we want to honor you. We do. We want to honor you, God. Help us to honor you in the midst of all that fills this world, all that competes for our time, all that is noisy and trying to grab our attention, God. God, I pray that you would break through that and that we would just grab hold of you and not let go. Because I know that you're not going to let go of us, God. Help us to be so intentional about honoring you, making you number one, making sure you're, that you're what gets our best time every day. 
And God, I pray that as we do that, you would speak and encourage and teach and reveal and do all that you would do in our lives. Amen. Amen, church. Well, that's our message for this morning. If you've been following online, on, online with us, thank you. Have a great week. Thanks so much for checking out this message. LifeGate Church has people meeting in person and online in many different locations, and we'd love to help you get connected. My name is Andrew, and I lead our online team here at LifeGate Church, and it's our job to do exactly that. We'd love to support you, help you get connected, and find out how you can take your next steps. So why don't you head to lifegate.org.au slash online and we'd love to find out more about you and how we can serve you as a church. Thanks for checking out this message and we'll catch you soon.